if you want solutions, you must focus your mind. Introducing your host, Mason Hargrave. This week I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Owen Muir, a psychiatrist here in New York City and co-founder of both Brooklyn Minds and a startup called Sphere. He has numerous ideas as to how to reform mental health care in the United States, both at the financial and clinical levels, of course, informed by his background as a clinician. I met Dr. Owen Muir on Clubhouse, where we mutually geeked out on transcranial magnetic stimulation and its potential uses, not only as a treatment for depression, but mental disorders more broadly. Without further ado, I introduce to you Dr. Owen Muir. So we do the four F's here. Yeah. The four F's are finding a problem worth solving, framing it such that it appears solvable, uh, figuring out the solution to that problem, and then funding that solution. Fourth F. Yeah, it's important. Uh, one. I know you have some stuff on that recently, I, but I do. We, and we may jump into that if that's if that's. I mean, I can talk about the journey. Cool. Yeah. Um. So, but let's start with just how did you find? You're a psychiatrist. How did you find psychiatry? Like to be the pro, like people's lives. I don't even know how to phrase this. Like, how do you find problems in people's lives worth solving? Right. Um, I was uh, a recording engineer. Yeah. Uh, in my first line of work, as it were. Um, I went to Amherst College as an undergrad. Yeah. And I spent every waking spare moment in the slaughterhouse, a recording studio down the street. Got it. My first day there, I got to meet Jay Maskus and uh, Kevin Shields from My Bloody Valentine. Beautiful. Uh, Mark Allen Miller, it was the engineer there and a mentor, and I just... I love that man. Uh, if Mark is ever listening to anything I say, Mark, I'm deeply grateful. Um, and, and I started doing like recording professionally, like every fucking weekend. I just actually, the, a record I did my fourth year of college just got issued again on Spotify. So you can go here. It's called Last Chance Soda by the band Kid Samson. Oh, awesome. It, you have to send me the link. I'll put links in bio. It's so good. Um, and we basically spent a month and had the access the entire music building at Amherst College to our disposal because the person who was in the band was the music TA. He's everything. So every actual instrument on the record is a real instrument. Orchestral bells. <laughs> the only thing we, we synthed was a harpsichord, but only because it was out of tune. I love real instrument recordings. Yeah. Air, air moving is great. And so what the problem I was kind of solving for myself in going to medical school right. was I worked for a while as an engineer at Sony Music Studios. Yep. And I hated it. Why would you hate it? Uh, because it turns out the actual process of working in the music industry in 2001, 2002 is that it was dying. And uh, working in New York is someplace where you record a lot of hip hop. Hmm. And there's no sound moving for hip hop. Um, as in, you're, that's all synths. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, now I actually love. And sense. you're into analog recording. I'm super into analog. Recording. So the discrepancy there was. Well, it wasn't. They weren't making music that had performance, more or less, as as a feature. Um, can you can you parse that out? Because I suspect that there will be listeners who are yeah. like mad about you now, saying now, that. No, rap is an art form. Yeah. Uh, rap production is an art form. Yeah. But it is not one that requires the virtuosity of a jazz musician. Define virtuosity. Just if you're so that, not a rapper, I mm -hmm. believe the rapper's out of it, but you're a producer. Mm -hmm. And at that time, that means an NPC. Yeah. And that means it quantizes what you do. Yeah. It means you don't need to know anything about music. You just have to have kind of a good ear for groove. Yeah. And you can sample stuff so you don't even have to write it. And, and the actual performance of the thing, there's creativity that goes into it. Right. In the same way collage is creative. 
mm-hmm. right? And and you can do oh, that's beautiful true. art with collage. Yeah, but it's different as a discipline than painting. Right. You're certainly not thinking about things like oh, how do I get this mode to switch to that mode? And you know, the, you know, thinking about scales. Is that but, what you're getting but at? But it's or? not even that. It's the the technical amount of proficiency you need to have with the language and production of music to play an upright bass in a jazz band is really high. Mm-hmm. And the amount of dedication and time and energy in your life you have to spend perfecting the craft is extremely high. Yeah. The MPC fixes your fucked up timing. I see. What's an MPC? Uh, MIDI Production Center. Oh, okay. Music Production Center. Oh, MPC. MPC. MPC 3000 at the time. Got it. Um, and so it was a sampler. Yeah. And it had like 16 pads. And you, you know, bump, 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 and boom, the beat is done. It's quantized. You don't have to worry about it. Like it's out of time. Now it's not anymore. Yep. You auto tune everything, you yep. vocal line everything. And so the ability to make things perfect without having to be able to actually do it perfectly. That's very different than making a King Crimson album. It is. And when I did my record uh, in, in last year, we intentionally did it on analog tape, 24 yep. track, and almost everything was first take. Wow. I did one vocal punch in entire record i'm a terrible singer right um but what it forces you to do and i think real what working with like real session musicians yeah and the collaboration like not all of it has to come from your own head yeah and so in a way it's harder to produce hip-hop because so much of it is coming from like your own mind if you're a solo producer Mm. and in a way it doesn't have the same experience of the back and forth of a band Right. Um, and, but, you know, my ethos, at least at the time as a young, younger person, was that uh, I really wanted to work with a band. Right. And I think that carries through to this day, honestly, in my approach to working as a psychiatrist. Totally. It's not alone. It's with a team. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So so how does that work? How do you even translate a band, the band dynamic into psychiatry? Um, so uh, my I went to the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry for med school. Got it. And that is the home of the biopsychosocial model of medicine. Uh, George Engel came up with it. And oh, it the, I'm reading about this in the in, in uh, affective neuroscience, Jack Pinksep's book that yeah. I've been going through. Um, and or Jacques probably. <laughs> um, and your University of Rochester does does it's the least toxic place I've ever been in. <laughs> and yeah, it, it prepares you very poorly for the toxicity of the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. In that it is so warm and generally benign. Yeah, I had one rotation at Rochester General Hospital in OBGYN, which was just a fucking nightmare. But it was probably a better simulacrum for what I would experience later. Yeah. Um, which is in many ways awful. <laughs> um, but you know, there, you know, the, the 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 working as a team is just kind of taken as taken for granted. Right. Um, when I got to, you know, residency, I think uh, at at Northwell, um, yeah. now Northwell at the time, uh, it's actually now the Barbara and David Zucker. Hit, uh, Hofstra Northwell School of Medicine General Psychiatry Residency Program at the Z- Barbara and David Zucker Hillside Hospital. That's the full name. Love, love long protracted names encouraged by donors that all want their name on everything. Well, God bless them. God um, bless them. No, I and won't complain about donors. Love you guys. It was the it was the it was the Marine Corps of of psychiatry. Yeah. Um, there were eighteen people in my class, which is huge for a psychiatry residency. Oh, is it? Yeah, one of the biggest in the country. Oh, wow! At the time, um, and that had a very, but they, they did a special thing. We didn't realize how special it was at the time. They let us decide for ourselves what our call schedule would be. Hmm. What does that mean? That meant the whole residency class got together every month and fucking fought it out. 
<laughs> about who would be on call when. So what? How, how is that special, and why is that? Why does that shape? How game theoretically? What does right. that do to the? So, Due to the, the standard for this is you have chief residents, they decide the call schedule, and it is dispensed from on high. Got it. And so people are aware in a residency program, uh, the hospital will be covered by a doctor 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every day, of, every day, every night, every hour. Yeah. And weekends, holidays, say goodbye. Got it. Um, never leave the pager unattended becomes your god. Right. And frankly, in a newer generation of doctors who haven't had the same 24-hour work periods that I did in training, I don't think that's there's the same level of responsibility inculcated. Mm. Yeah. That's a problem. You, you, so you like the 24-hour shift model? Um, I recently found out, literally this weekend, that the 24-hour on-call model was developed by a surgeon who was, who on, was cocaine. on cocaine the whole time. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's not good. <laughs> it's a terrible idea. Right. However, the ability to take responsibility and to understand that responsibility for the lives of others is yours right is a tremendously formative experience i see and the the concept that you should never let that handoff go unhanded off is mm. important yeah and i mean i have you know sorry millennials but i just don't see it as much in millennials i see a lot of entitlement and i don't see a lot of uh responsibility and that is a broad sweeping generalization don't worry i'm gen z i love millennial yeah, bashing yeah. um but i like there so, is so so the, you, by the way I'm, I'm the first generation first member of you, you i'm as old as you can be yeah. to be on gen z so this is I, i'm as young as you can be pretty much to be in a yeah. phd program yeah so i am the first line of gen z entering into <laughs> phd programs so i'm glad that i get to introduce you to my generation yeah. in yeah. this interview so um I love millennial bashing. Let's get into it. I mean, I, I, it's it's. I think it's maybe not millennials themselves, no, no, but totally. like there is, you know, there there there. I I don't want to like worship at the altar of it was harder back in my day, right? Because like it, it wasn't like the year I started was the year the sixteen hour work rule for interns started. Got it. But med school wasn't. Mm. Expectation wasn't. Mm -hmm. And my class, especially at least to that cohort was very much the opinion that we own this responsibility. Right. Um, and so that was kind of like forced negotiation for four years between a group of people who had to decide for themselves what to do and how to do it. Right. And that led to some rather remarkable cohesiveness. Um, I think one thing special is our male to female ratio is very off for psychiatry. It's a heavily female predominant discipline. Right. We had four women in our class. Oh, wild. Yeah. And this is the luck, that is of, not, the luck of the match. Really is the Marine Corps. Well, I mean, my class was. It wasn't yeah. that way for everybody else. Um, but we had just, a, a, I think, the right mix of mm -hmm. people and the right mix of energies. And all, all the, the, the women in the class were very much like, oh, I'm so happy it's mostly dudes. <laughs> really? Yeah. And I just... <laughs> They're, they're, I've heard that before. I, I I've heard a lot of I've heard, I've heard a lot. You know, it's funny because I was the other way when I was an undergraduate. I and I was in physics. I almost exclusively studied with women. Yeah. I I can't. I don't think I know exactly why. I think I might know partially why. I you know I I would get in like these weird dominance battles with other guys. Whereas if I was like, for instance, if I were like, I would look at a problem and I would just know that that was wrong. And I would say that's not correct. And they would say, well, you know, how do you want, how, how do you know? And they wanted to be kind of a negotiation and I wouldn't negotiate. I would eventually be like, I would kind of explain why it's wrong. But there is like this massive tension towards just me knowing that something was wrong and saying that. 
Whereas I didn't experience that with, with, with women, even though they would be like, Hmm, let me think about it. And sometimes I would be wrong and they would be like, and, and they would work with me on like, and I would be at the end of it. I'd be like, Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> you were right in the first place, but I just got into these weird, you know, dominance battles with other men. I'm not sure if that was, uh, I'm not sure what that was about, but <laughs> I mean, I think there's something to like, it's, it's not so much about individual men or women, but ratios thereof. Interesting. In, in, in different contexts. Yeah. Right. Um, and totally. <laughs> and so at least in this context, um, we were tremendously supportive of each other. Yeah. Um, I got sick in my third year of residency and ended up going to a psychiatric hospital myself. Mm. And that was a real turning point. By sick? Uh, I had suicidal depression. Yeah. And wanted to die. And awesome. Yeah. Um, and walked into the psychiatric hospital and uh, checked myself in. Yep. Um, and is that common? Do you think do people who have suicidal thoughts often check themselves in or is oh, it? Oh, I mean, um, the vast majority of admissions to psychiatric hospitals are to calm the nerves of psychiatrists. Yeah. And the locks on the doors are for the psychiatrist. That's empirical. Yeah, uh, we have studies from Germany looking at locked versus unlocked units, and the rates of elopement are the same. Huh? And the rates of completed suicide are higher with locked units. So unlocked units better. Um, unlocked units beg the question: What are the locks for? I see. Elopement meaning escape. Yes. <laughs> okay. Do the doors keep people in, locked or unlocked? The answer is the same. How could that even be? Because you can escape a lock if you want to. Right. I mean, it's like, that's one of the things that people ask me, well, what do you think is like, that's actually an empirical question. Right. And I think that's the first thing I'd say about the F, finding the problem. Yeah. Is thinking empirically. Right. And so when people ask you like how, what something, how could or should be done. Right. Um, if your first answer is, well, I think it could be, or in my experience it is, I, uh, clinical pearls, no thank you. Yeah. Um, it's an empirical question. Right. Whether it's answerable or not is another issue entirely. Right. But do you think X is better than Y? Well, what's the evidence? Mm. Um, and one of the things my wife has pointed out, who is a very good psychiatrist who went to a much better program at MGH, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, you know, she is okay with not having everything be so rigidly empirical because I think she's just that that culture was very much one of kind of like respect for the godlike power of all the doctors they're in at MGH. I see. And um, the kind of uh, empiricism was bent to their will. I have to ask, are you getting in trouble with your wife here saying this? No, I think she'd agree. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, I mean, she's like, I also have a weird brain for numbers and stuff. Yeah. And uh, so it's a little bit easier for me to ask these kind of questions and have the answers at my fingertips. Right. Um. But I think like when we're looking for problems yep. to solve, how do you find a problem? Uh, is there an empirical answer to the question you're asking? Right. Is it, is it even a question that's answerable? Right. Is it an answerable question? Well, like if you're asking it, why are you asking it? Yeah. Right. And I got, I got real lucky in my very first rotation at Hillside. I had Dr. Peter Manu, yeah. the director of the internal medicine service at a psychiatric hospital. Interesting. Who was fabulous at saying, that's a great question. Right. So one of the questions I asked first was, can we give clozapine to someone who's had a granulocytosis from clozapine? Let's, let's dive into that for a moment. A month can and a half later, I had a paper. <laughs> what, 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 why would you ask that question? So clozapine is uh, still to this day, the most effective treatment for schizophrenia okay. that exists. Got it. Um, to the point where 
we have done work on intraventricular administration of liquid clozapine into the brains of people with schizophrenia. Yeah. Um, schizophrenia is a terrible illness. Yeah. And um, getting better from that thing is meaningful. Yeah. Importantly, the standards we use for the medications we have are low. The standard for getting a schizophrenia medication approved and antipsychotic, which all right now have the same mechanism, D2 agonism. Okay. That's D2 is dopamine, dopamine 2. D2. So it's coded by the DRD2 gene, Okay, um, which actually shows up in the GWAS. If you look at the GWAS? genome-wide association study. Thank you. Um, it, so thank God, uh, the gene that codes for the one drug target we have in the illness is statistically significantly associated with the illness it, itself when you have enough of them together. Got it. In a Manhattan plot, which is how we th- have these wide, a-hypothetical studies run. Yeah. Um, it would have been very embarrassing had that not been the case. <laughs> Why? Um, because psychiatric genetics is a fucking shit show. Yeah. It's getting better. Um, but, yeah. uh, seen a lot of, seen a lot of startups around there and I've seen not a lot of success, but this is a great example. Like, is it an answerable question? Yes. How are you going to answer it? That's the frame. That's part two. That's framing. Framing, right? And so I think what we did, what you have to do when you're asking like, like, is this question worth answering? Well, so people are suffering, right? Is the way in which they're suffering and the amelioration of it in the case of schizophrenia, giving them the drug clozapine and that treatment failing them because it causes a life threatening adverse event, right? Which in, in the case of my study was neutropenia, a low white blood cell count. Okay. A granulocytosis, a very low white blood cell count. Mm. Neuroleptic malignant syndrome, or NMS, a rare side effect. Mm-hmm. And uh, myocarditis, a rare cardiac side effect. Those are the four things we looked at. There are okay. others, but those are the Those, are the, main, those are the big life-threatening potential. Small bowel obstruction is also important, but that wasn't in my study. We didn't have enough data on it. Got it. So we did a paper, which was the first paper. And by the way, if you're a scientist... Write the first paper on the thing, because then everyone has to cite it. It can be garbage, but be there first for your for your you know relevance count on ResearchGate. Yeah, or whatever. This is uh, uh, yeah, this is true. Pro tip. Yeah. <laughs> oh, th- this is this is there's a reason there's a reason I published uh, some early papers on uh, linear polymer modeling for Origins of Life uh, as a new theory was emerging. Yeah, so. that's what you did. Drop just drop that shit when there's not. And much so, out there. and somehow the University of New South Wales let me do a talk there. As a PhD student, which is almost, if you know academic talks, it's almost yes. never that you're an invited speaker as a as a PhD student. I was an assistant professor of medicine before I graduated. Residency. Oh, beautiful! Well, thank and also thank you for thank God for COVID right. because uh, wait, <laughs> you got to do it virtually because I got to do it virtually. See, they would have never taken the risk had it not been for COVID, and I got to say, I got to say, take a risk on me, yeah, and they did. And I have a collaborator at UNSW now based on that talk. Yeah. So, uh, but you hold on, you're an assistant professor before you finished residency. Yeah, hilarious. <laughs> well, the thing is, they gave it to everyone who did the work of teaching the medical students at Hofstra Northwell on their core rotation. Got it. And I was an R four, but I was one of the very few residents in the teaching rotation. But everyone who did it, you, you want to know how I know? Want to know how I know you're uh, you're from Gen X? Is that that was possible? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It was total loophole. You asshole! You're gonna tell me. <laughs> well, um, it, total, total, total loophole. Um, I got to be a clinical instructor at NYU because I was just part of the deal with being a fellow there. Yeah. And now I'm an assistant professor of medicine at Baylor. Beautiful. Um, because that's where my research collaborators are. Got it. Um, but like, so we have this question, and I sat down in my first, and this I just wish more 
teaching was like this. It just happened spontaneously. My colleague Deepak Sarpal and I, who is a dear friend to this day, were sitting down with Peter Manu, and, and, and I said, well, wait, why can't we do that? He's like, well, you know, that's an answerable question. Why can't you give this medication, which causes life-threatening adverse events, but is life-saving or, or life- For people you know, with schizophrenia. people with schizophrenia. Yep. Why can't you give it to them again? What's, what happens? Oh, so if they have one incident, yeah. can you give it to them again? Yeah, and the orthodoxy at the time was no. So so what I have to understand is, is okay, so that's an answerable question, but it, are you even is it even morally okay to design that trial? So it was a literature review. I see. Ah, so you didn't have so to do that. So importantly, John Kane is the chair of the department there, and he brought clozapine to this country. Yeah. So this is a deeply important question to that department. Got it. This would challenge the orthodoxy of how this drug is delivered. Yeah. And he gave us a week off to do it. It's a fun question because fun because question. it's it's kind of a, it's kind of a troll yeah. question. It's like it's like oh you know, mm -hmm. it's a question you wouldn't really think of asking. Right, I would say. Right, I wouldn't think of asking that question. And it turns out that we have hundreds of citations on that paper. Fascinating. And it totally ruined me because I thought research was easy because we got that done and in schizophrenia bulletin in like two months. Oh my my best paper. By my paper, I didn't even write the thing, but my top sided paper was the one I did when I was 18. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And I didn't write it, by the way. I just want to clarify, but I, you know, I tacked on something at the end of a paper that was coming out and mm -hmm. still my top sided paper. So I think like this, this is this, the academic versus like kind of business approach is like, is this an answerable problem? And then like, what do you do with that answer? Right. I think is, is, is like an important next step. Um, and the way of thinking about it is different in an entrepreneurial frame than it is in a, in a science or research frame. Yeah. Um, because practically speaking, as a researcher, you want a paper out of it. Right. That people are going to read and cite. Right. That's your currency. That's your currency. It's, it's rep. Yeah. And, you know, getting that next paper request right. or next speaking gig or whatever. That's right. Um, and I think that's probably a bad way to do things. And maybe you'd be able to get finally get to your third postdoc and get right, to uh, right. become an assistant professor. Um, and um, I think as a as a as a as physician and entrepreneur, the outcomes are different. Yeah. Um, and thinking that way is actually pretty helpful. Yeah. Um, because you think of different endpoints and different ways of looking and answering questions. So, is it an answerable question? Yes. Can we answer it with a literature review? Yes. Can we publish that? Yes. Does that change practice a little bit? Maybe. Yeah. But I think one of the things I learned there was not all questions are worth answering. That that's exactly why it's in the first F, right? F find a problem that's worth solving because tons of problems out there you can run yourself around, and it wasn't even it wasn't even worth the work you did. No, because you know you, you have fi you have finite time, and you want to solve problems that actually affect people's lives. Low, At least I do. Low hanging fruit. Yeah. Um, or actionable fruit, or whatever. Actionable fruit. Um, will this change practice? Right. So there's still, to this day, an unanswered question in the field. What medications or interventions could we use for children who are uh, having, a, a, you know, acute agitation? Right. There is no answer to that question mm. other than injectable placebo works better than oral placebo. <laughs> An injectable drug works better than oral drug. They are not different from each other. Love that. Yeah. It kind of makes sense. I believe well, I mean, but kind of makes sense. Empirically, that's what we found. Yeah. The drug doesn't matter. The route of administration does. Right. Right. So then you have a lot of people in your office. Yeah. Well, I mean, on my team. On your team. Oh, I, I, I mean, oh, right. <laughs> Got <laughs> not, it. Not that many in the office. Um, but then you have, and then you have a lot of patients every day. Yes. So patient comes in. 
how do you, and it describes what problems they're having, but you may disagree with what problems they actually have. And, or like, I, like so, how do you, how do you figure out how much, how, this, this is what I'm trying to say, in yeah. literature, there's yep. the idea of the unreliable narrator. Yep. Do you want to grab, I saw you think no, about I'll, I'll okay. get there. Um, there's the idea mm -hmm. of the unreliable narrator. Mm -hmm. And it's where you don't, can't fully trust the narrator of yep. the story. Mm -hmm. And you have to be in that mindset all day of the unreliable narrator. So I will break it to you. How? For my patients, just if they're listening, yeah. anyone. I don't believe you. Okay. In that I understand there are things you won't tell me. Yep. Because you feel too ashamed. Mm -hmm. Or you're, you don't trust me for yep. very good reasons uh, to you and probably to me. Um, there are unspoken truths. There are things they're afraid of. Um, and this, the, the whole truth will not come out, certainly not in that first interview. And I want to let you know, I don't buy it. Okay. I don't buy it. But I want you to know, I'm going to listen to you, and I'm going to accept what you say. Right. And I'm going to accept there are things that are unstated. Right. And that we will learn together over time, I hope. Right. And maybe you'll grow to trust me. Right. And maybe you won't. Right. But um, the fact that that is at issue is on the table. Hmm. So then how do you, when you have noisy data yep. <laughs> and biased data, mm -hmm. how do you take that and then frame it such that you, 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 you know, you, you know, first of all, how do you even find the problem in their life and pinpoint the problem? Because I might say, I might say I'm having, I don't know, I, I, I'm having an issue with at work, but the actually the issue you is said my that much. I actually already have enough information to make uh, a reasonable like differential before you even said the word. Cause I have 50,000 hours of watching people talk about the problems. Right. And so I have more data in the first 30 seconds than you know. Right. And usually I have a pretty good idea of what the problem is. And the rest of the time is getting you to a place where you understand that I could understand what your problem is and actually believe that I could have gotten it instead of being going like, you got OCD. Right. <laughs> you can't do that in the beginning because well, people need to, people, even if you know that, yeah. you have to, you have to get them to accept. You have to get them there in a way that they find believable. Right. Like, did they listen to enough of my story that they could possibly... They could possibly know this. Yeah. And so I have a trainee who's, who often, like, will join me for supervisions in the beginning. She's yeah. watching me do intakes, and she's like, he's a wizard. How do you know I asked that question? Pattern recognition, right? Right. We, there are certain patterns to how human brains behave. Mm -hmm. And if you've seen enough of them, and you have listened to your patients closely enough, you will recognize patterns, and you will draw from the one thing and another, but prepare yourself to be wrong. Right. And learn the I, ways I hear that... Which, uh, Maybe I'm maybe I'm a pop science guy, but I've been reading a lot of Jung, and you hear that in Jung all the time. It's like all over the place in his essays. It's mm -hmm. it's like it's like you you'll have a frame. You'll introduce the, you'll have a frame as to how you think the problem, like what you think the problem is. Yep. You'll introduce it, and then be prepared if that's accepted, and that's like yes, that is my problem. And then you're like great, and you can work mm -hmm. together on trying to solve that problem, and also be prepared for I suppose this is just out of what I'm getting out of Jung mm -hmm. is. Be prepared for no. That's not my problem at all. What are you thinking? Yep. And, and that and, argument, and so, <laughs> not and even so an argument, but like he was chewing a, that up. He was a he and all the people who came before Mary Ainsworth were keen observers, but they're not scientists. Yeah. Uh, until we had video cameras, right? Um, we didn't have science in psychiatry. In psychiatry. Yeah, I would argue. I would believe that. Um, and the ability to actually film and rewind and play what we're seeing and code it. Right, and actually have reliable, replicable 
observers into rate reliability, etc. That changed the game. Yeah. Because it took us from a world of Kohut making developmental theories based on never seeing any children and, you know, rapprochement from Melanie Klein, which are very nice poetic theories, but Shakespeare does just as much for me, if not more. Right. Um, to empiricism. Yeah, a lot of people have been cured by Dostoevsky. I don't know about cured, but like... I'm being poetic myself. Is it a... Is it, is it science? Well, is it empirically falsifiable? Right. So being I, I, wrong... I, I always state that what is true is different than from... Is very different from what is useful. Right. Uh, not all things that are true are useful. Not all things that are useful are true. Right. And be pre prepared for the substantial gap between them. And in fact, that t problem of finding a problem worth solving is roughly mm -hmm. saying finding a truth worth truth whose discovery would be useful. Because there's a lot of truths whose discovery are not useful at all. Yep. Not even really. In fact, there are truths whose discovery are anti-useful. Yep. In the fourth year of residency, I uh, literally snuck out. I had my colleagues cover me for the day. I had no more vacation time. And I went to a mentalization-based treatment training with the person who took over the Antifreud Center from Antifreud, Peter Fonagy, um, uh, the, the, the captain, in my mind, of empiricism and psychology. Right. And he and Anthony Bateman created a treatment from that called mentalization-based treatment, which changed my life. Um, so the structure of everything I do um, is based around the heuristic models that they have provided me with yep. which are they would argue nothing new uh just a more simplified and way of kind of presenting a thing right um around how humans when thoughts and feelings work right and so the like important questions that you could ask from the work they did uh have informed what i do to this day with interventions or not what does that look like um it, so Mistrust exists. Absolutely. Um, people don't, uh, kind of axiomatically, aren't going to know what their problem is a lot of the time. Because right. the insight into that problem failing is part of the problem. Right. The framing of the problem is what precludes the solving of the problem. Yeah. And so asking people what their chief complaint is is a terrible idea. Really? I, I mean, not the worst, but I have colleagues who don't even do it. Right. Um, because depression and anxiety is the answer. And it's almost never the answer. That's literally been uh, the actual diagnosis once in four years of private practice. Really? Yep. That's super surprising to me. Well, it turns out, do you know any other answers is an important question. <laughs> so there's, there is, there is, um, you know, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual is, is a metaphor, a book of metaphors. Right. Um, and they're useful in as much as they're useful. But I think the lack of rigor to which they're, I mean, there's a lot of present, presenting them to people with, you know, different degrees of licensure, I won't say lower, but social yeah. work, psychology, et cetera, where they're taught essentially, this doesn't matter. Right. And it doesn't matter if you don't do anything differently based on the answer. Mm. And so their experience of it not mattering is validated by their practice. However, it turns out when you have different tools at your disposal, it very much does matter. So before I could target different areas of the brain to stimulate, the answer to the question, why do you feel anxious, wasn't very important. Why? Because it didn't matter. I would use the same treatments. You're anxious. Here is an SSRI. It's an anxiolytic. Great name, right? Right. Um, and it turns out for Lysing obsessive, anxiety? I know. What a biological way of putting I that. I know. I know. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> if you have obsessive compulsive disorder or whatever the fuck generalized anxiety disorder is, right. or depression, 
or panic. It's the or same. It's the same drug. It's the same treatment. Right. I and, see. And the, and the cognitive behavioral therapy. We worshipped the altar of 50% better for 30 fucking years and it destroyed my field. CBT? All of it. Drug development, SSRI, CBT, all of it was held to a standard. 50% better. Mm. Schizophrenia medicine, 20% better. Everything else, 50% better. Where the fuck was your mission? Right. I think it's time to improve that. Yes. And now we can. And the fact that we didn't, I think we have to be held to account for. So... If you were to line out, how do you get beyond 50% success rate? Well, can, can you, can you, first of all, yeah. just for the audience, because I, I know what you're talking about, but I'm feeling like it might not be as clear. What do you mean when you say that that was the standard? Can you just like lay right. that out explicitly? To get a medication approved by the FDA, yep. you need to run a randomized control trial where placebo is compared to your active agent or theoretically active agent. Right. Um, and in the comparison, when you compare placebo, to active agent, the symptoms of your targeted diagnosis from which you exclude all other diagnoses generally from the sample. Which uh, would be hard if which, you're not really sure that your categories are right. But you make sure you the categories are right because you don't, hey, house of God, don't take a temperature, can't find a fever. What does that mean? Uh, the house of God was the definitive book about medicine in the 1960s written by Samuel Shem, a.k.a. Uh, the psychiatrist is actually at NYU now and I've gotten to meet. Um, but... Uh, the it, it's a it's a novel mm. it's theoretically fiction it's not it's like you anyone in medicine is like oh fuck that happened um it is the it is to medicine what spinal tap is rock oh so i have to read it you have to read it it's fabulous great um i'll add it to my list but there there are rules of the house of god mm. uh and one of them is don't take a temperature can't find a fever right if you want to discharge someone and you don't want to know they have a fever ah, don't take that temperature that's what that i right. see um, there are other important laws, like they can always hurt you more, which I think are important to remember. <laughs> he wasn't wrong. Um, age plus blood urea nitrogen equals Lasix dose. <laughs> I don't get that one. It, it, it's, a, it's a diuretic, and that's a simple formula for determining the dosage of the medicine to diurese somebody. Oh, boy. Um, these were, you know, playful and buried in them were things like they can always hurt you more. Yeah. So um, when you're setting up a trial you have people who only have the thing at least theoretically yeah and uh the thing you're studying and you treat them with a sugar pill or the thing and you assume they can't tell the difference and then at the end of that study you have someone with a rating scale uh rate their symptoms right and they'll be 50 percent better or your drug is not approved right and so so that that's a low bar is what you're saying i'm saying it's a bar we decided on yeah that for therapy too, for cognitive behavioral therapy, thank you, Aaron Beck, that we decided to use the same standard. Hmm. 50% better was the altar. And are we surprised that that is the results we got? Right. Not well. Your depression wasn't intended to be over with that drug. It was to, intended to be less miserable. Right. Fuck. That's sad. Well, a lot of people were sad and felt very invalidated because I'm taking medicine when I started taking medicine for my illness, nobody told me it should work. Right. So I took it for years and didn't. I didn't cause much of a fuss about it. Right. And no one really took issue with the fact that it wasn't And, working. you know, at a certain point, you start accepting that that's the reality. And that's, yeah, no, that's all it's ever going to be. And so that's the important part. The bi confirmation bias in my field is wildly problematic because let's say you have bipolar disorder. Yeah. Or you assume someone has bipolar disorder. Totally. That is the best diagnosis to assume because if you treat someone for their bipolar disorder, and you give them 
a drug like Seroquel, um, and they never have another manic episode, you have cured their bipolar mania. Uh, right? And that will happen 100% of the time with people who don't have bipolar disorder who you give Seroquel to. Like 100% of the time, though, they're manic. They'll never cured? have another manic episode because they never had one in the first place. Right. So misdiagnosing bipolar disorder plus treatments for bipolar disorder equals confirmation bias. But but hold on, hold on. Then why, then, then whatever it was that they were having right. that they reported right. as a manic episode. Right. It was interpreted there, right? Well, it yeah. was interpreted by them as a manic episode. Mm-hmm. Doesn't ha- They never interpret anything they do again as a manic episode? Well, if you're the psychiatrist who's prescribing the medicine, you don't. But they may be very no. depressed. Oh, so what you do, this is interesting. So what you're saying is it happens. Yeah. Is that people come in with yep. a bipolar, they get a, fa- like not a, not a very good bi- di- bipolar diagnosis. Yeah. Someone says that what they did was manic. You don't argue with them on the first one. Mm-hmm. You treat them with Seroquel. Then they come in again mm-hmm. later. And they're depressed. And then they have another thing that they might report as a manic no, episode. No, but they don't because they never had it in the first place. I mean, on average. Well, why, why, why is it that they that they would believe that they had a manic episode, come in, report it, well, and then do, get they, treated with Seroquel? That's again. not what happens. Okay. Generally, what happens is they have an experience. They report it to a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist, the psychiatrist says, it, "I can treat bipolar disorder. That might be mania." And the problem is, if you don't know what mania is, anything can be mania. I see. And there were people who made arguments, like Joe Biederman at MGH, that all irritability in children was bipolar disorder. Oh, great. So a lot of kids got put on Risperdal. Mm. There were more children diagnosed with bipolar disorder than there were adults with bipolar disorder. That's odd. It's impossible. Why? It's a lifelong illness that has an onset at 18 or later on average. So the average age of onset of mania at 10 and the average duration of mania of one year is not a plausible thing. And that's the data behind the early studies in bipolar disorder in children. So, but couldn't you, couldn't, couldn't you argue that um, it was for a long time you just were underdiagnosing bipolar? Wouldn't that be the argument? If I was if I was going to devil devil's advocate that that for a long time we were underdiagnosing bipolar and that's and adults don't go in to psychiatrists. It's easier to get children into the hospital for psychiatry or something like that. But but, but, but no. Um, no, do adults because, because what they were using was a different set of criteria and just calling it this other thing. So, okay, this is the, the, this. Because when you follow them over time, they don't develop adult bipolar disorder. This this is a this grinds my gears. Well, it should. Uh, should I? Should, I mean, I'm, I'm about to get myself in trouble. Go for it. Great. Um, there's something that we've been saying a lot, and maybe, maybe, maybe you can tell me if this is real or if I'm if I'm annoyed on this on purpose. Mm-hmm. So I was diagnosed with autism at at, at, at eight years old. Yeah. Right. Um, they had very specific criteria for what is yep. autism. Very recently, they've been talking a lot about women being underdiagnosed for autism. They talk about this a lot. However, what I have explained to me is, oh, well, women present differently for autism. But then it's like, well, if, and they say, oh, well, I was able to do this and that because I was masking. And I'm like, well, I couldn't mask. Why, why is it that that would be called autism? Is, is it because of funding? Because we, there is something that women have that is a struggle that is different? Like the categories are... We have a similar problem for both of these issues. You, you get what I'm trying to say, right? What you're right? saying is I'm upset that people are diagnosing a thing that I thought I understood and gave me some explanatory power for my life. Right. And now they're using that same explanation for something that looks different. Right. Right. And the reason behind both of those things being fucked is probably the same, which is the incentives to make the diagnosis were not the same as the incentives of getting it right. 
Interesting. Talk about that. Autism as a diagnosis gives you access to massive resources. Huge. Huge. Bipolar disorder means that drug is going to get approved. Right. And you're going to have something you can do as a psychiatrist, which makes you feel good all day long. Yeah, so, th- th- this is this is true, right? Because the very strange thing that I had was that as soon as I had an autism diagnosis, right, I could get treated better by my teachers, right? My right. teachers wouldn't weren't mean to me anymore. Mm-hmm. They were they were somewhat understanding, mm-hmm. right? They would talk to me after class instead of you know basic, basically thinking me as a trouble child, right? I I I I like got put in a different social category where I kind of and by the way, to my own advantage, I got to be more out outspoken i got to be more creative Mm -hmm. and no one stopped me from doing that and Mm -hmm. sometimes in my in my real real cynical mind i wonder is that all the diagnosis was for did the diagnosis help you understand yourself totally in in some ways right and any good metaphor will do that right and, and but that's precisely what I like to get at is that it is in some ways it feels like a metaphor right because it's what it's not doing is it's not exp- explaining the neurological like the actual underlying right. causes of some behavior pattern right. which seems similar and I sometimes also worry and maybe I'm opening too many cans of worms at once here that the these categories are bordering on getting so broad that they're no longer useful. All models are wrong, some are useful. You right. preserve the utility of the model, right. but remember that reliability and validity are different. Right. You can reliably diagnose something that's rigidly defined. It doesn't mean it's valid. Right. You can validly dose, d- diagnose something that's poorly defined. It doesn't mean it's reliable. And this is my truth-useful dichotomy, right? Yes. So I, do I think, so, so I, now I'm really going to get myself in trouble. Do I think autism is real? If what you mean is, do you? I think there is a consistently is consistent biological cause of autism. My answer would be no. Because if I, de- I, I, mean, I would agree with you. Because yeah. what we're talking about is probably something very heterogeneous, right? With myriad biological underpinnings and different presentations that we lump as this schizophrenia if, is similar. Right. Everyone on Earth with schizophrenia, more or less, is a different genotype. So then I would say, do I think the autism diagnosis is useful? I would say. Yes, it gave me access to resources and a community, and mm-hmm. um, you know when 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 it's uh, okay to be you. And and by the way, when I make a huge social faux pas and I let slip that I'm autistic, I get a lot more sympathy. Yeah, thank God, yeah. because I make social faux pas constantly. Mm-hmm. Like I'm I'm just like an. <laughs> I mean, imagine if the if the if the explanatory models. Sorry, I'm a dick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a huge dick. That's why I do this. <laughs> right. 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 Exactly. Um, and then, and then, and, and so, so here's where I'll soften my position a little bit. Um, not even to be diplomatic, just because this is actually what I've come around to, which is if this model, if I've talked to a number of women now through the, through the internet, now that I've actually had access to talking to more people because mm-hmm. of COVID, I'm on discord and clubhouse all the time, yep. which is how we met. Um, I've, I've now talked to some women who've had autism diagnoses and they found it very useful to themselves for describing whatever it is that they're experiencing. My only concern is sometimes when I hear their experience, it doesn't track with my experience at all in the way that sometimes when I talk to other autistic men, it tracks more with my experience, like significantly more with my experience. There's a social component to it because their experience is is whatever autism is times whatever being a woman is. Being a woman is, right. And how you're treated as a woman. Totally. And how you're treated as an autistic woman. Right. Is different how you're treated as a dude. Absolutely. And how you're treated as an autistic dude. And and parsing all that out is difficult. And so I've I've accepted at this point in a lot of ways that 
it's just a useful categorization for women also, even if it is present presenting differently. But I always like, I'm, I'm getting worried that we're getting to the point with a lot of disorders that the, that the categorization, and maybe this is unfounded, but I've watched as the categorization of these things got broadened and broadened and mm -hmm. broadened. And if I extrapolate that, I'm worried that they'll get so broad that they're not useful. I even have people telling me, some people say, oh, well, everyone's on the spectrum. It's a spectrum. And I'm like, uh, if we're at the point where everyone's yep. on the category, the category sucks. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so I think what, what, what for me as a clinician of great experience, practically speaking, right. uh, the experience I have is working with people who are very sick. Yeah. That's not the same experience people with different license types have because you don't get trained doing overnight call in hospitals full of people who are just, you know, really tremendously suffering and their relationships with reality are very different than you see in a, you know, neurotic social work practice. It's just right. a different thing. Um, ironically, the treatments we have that are the most effective for suicidal people are psychotherapies. And so the people who are learning to deal with suicidal people are physicians and they're learning things to, to treat those things with medicine that are least responsive to them. Right. And the people who have the most kind of psychotherapeutic skill are not being deployed to work with the people who would benefit from that the most. I don't think I understand that. Therapists generally aren't the first line if you want to kill yourself. Oh. And they should be. Oh. Or therapy should be. Fascinating. So I'm actually a therapy trainer in mentalization-based treatment. I went through four years of supervision to become an official supervisor of whom there are five in the U.S. Ah. In that approach, which is a psychotherapeutic approach, and I'm a doctor, right. but it's got an effect size of 1.26. So of course I'm going to use it. Right. So what you're saying is that's why you house therapists in-house. at yes. your. At, this is at Brooklyn Mines? Yes. So I can train them. Fascinating. And, and our therapists are able to risk manage suicidal patients dramatically better than I've seen in any other setting. Wow. Because it turns out this is a very learnable skill set. Yep. And you don't have to be a doctor. Yep. It's just I happen to see enough suicidal people to get it. Right. I got lucky. So a lot of, so this is something psychiatrists haven't really hopped on yet. Do you think this is going to be the in future? The, is the, this going to happen more often? So in the UK, yes. In the, in the, in the, in Europe more, more often yeah. in the U S you know, it's, it's exciting, but we don't know it as much because they've done a bad branding job. Mm, what do you mean by that? Um, mentalization based treatment. Does that sound like, I don't one? think you're familiar with that phrase. Right. Right. That's the name of the thing. Huh? MBT. Got it. It's got three letters. That's cool. Yeah. But, and, and, but and, and, CBT, and, cognitive and behavioral, I know what those words mean. Right. Dialectical, eh, maybe not, but it's got behavioral too, so probably I can approach it. Right. Mentalization sounds very British. That does sound very British. And off-putting. Sounds kind of uh, sci-fi. It, it, I mean, it, it sounds like whatever you want it to sound like, but not something you understand. That's true. <laughs> right? Yeah. In that way, it's kind of helpful because you don't know what it is at first. It doesn't draw you in in the same way that something that sounds simple uh, right. might, but it doesn't force you to have a conversation about what it might mean. Right. Um, but, but practically, I think, like, problems that are worth solving, uh, it needs to make a difference. Yeah. Like, so if your diagnosis changes what you're going to do, then it matters to make a diagnosis. Right. If you don't have a tool set that's large enough to make it worth changing – or you have a limited, you know, if you have a hammer and 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 uh, and a fork, where you're going to spike things with a fork, you're going to hit things with a hammer, and you're going to call it a day. Right. Uh, and you won't do anything else. And this is one of those things that I I I kind of keep jumping at this, which is that. So I've been re very recently getting into I'm a new initiate to the field, mm 
And I've been reading, as I've said, the affective, the book Affective Neuroscience by yep. Jacques Pengsepp. And what I found really interesting in getting through parts of this is how much that the basic tools that we use, dopamine agonist and um, serotonergic agonist or, yep. um, Nonsense. are, they're sledgehammers. Yes. They're, dopamine is everywhere. I, w- yep. I was always under this naive assumption coming, coming from my background in physics and just kind of being interested in neuroscience that these were like specific circuits ran off of dopamine and specific circuits ran after ser- serotonin, but every circuit is run off of serotonin and dopamine or a large percentage of the Your brain. Your whole gut, for fuck's sake. So the idea that what we're adjusting are these giant knobs. Right, which is really helpful for your Pfizer selling Prozac, but not helpful for your patient. Right. It's crazy. Yeah. It's like you're just upregulating the whole thing. But <laughs> you're down, you're upregulating, I mean, you know? You're upregulating the whole thing, which causes downstream changes. Right. I All should right. mention upregulating is the fancy bio way just to saying turning the volume up on, yeah. on a given neural tra- on a given brain system. Yeah. And, 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 and in this case, you're turning the volume up on the whole brain system. Like the dopaminergic system is everything, and the mm-hmm. serotonergic system is like everything. Yeah. They're not specific. No. Um, but again, if it doesn't matter which part of the brain you touch, then that's fine. Right. If it does matter, uh, well, 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 I mean, because you can't target with those drugs different circuits. Right. And and if you can, the way you understand that targeting matters. Right. So now when I'm seeing people, I'm actually localizing the lesion. Right. So when I hear someone talk and they're describing their suffering, is this corticostridothalmocortical circuit hyperactivation mm. or is this subgenual cingulate hyper? Burr activation, and I have to either turn down the firing in the subgenual cingulate or turn down the firing in the dorsal anterior cingulate right. by using anticorrelated regions to get to it. So I think we've reached it. I think we've done it. You know what I think we've Got done? TMS? Oh, I think we've gotten to TMS, which is our fra- which is in some ways our framing of the problem. And mm-hmm. let me just Right. I'll be so I'll, I'll be I'll be the podcast host and do the thing yeah. and say that basically what we said is we found the problem, which is alleviating people's suffering. Right. We've gotten to the point of fr- uh, of a new frame, which I'm really excited about because mm-hmm. I should, you know, full disclosure, this is also what I'm working on for my PhD, right. which is getting interested in the question, okay, one framing of this is we're currently using sledgehammers. How do we use scalpels? How do we find specific regions of the brain that are associated with different things? How do we make it so the categories matter? We were talking about categories before, and right. the categories don't matter if all you're doing is you're go, all you're going to do is upregulate or downregulate anyway. If yep. all you're doing is using sledgehammers, the categories can be broad and be useful. But as soon as we start using scalpels, we have to tune the categories and start yes. getting them right at a biological level. Yes. And the scalpel you and I are both excited about. And so that we now we fr- that's the framing of the problem. How do we go from sledgehammers to scalpels? Go from 50% efficacy to get to getting to better than 50% efficacy. Mm-hmm. And the scalpel you were both interested in is called TMS. Right. All right. Let's let let her rip. Okay. What's TMS? Transcranial magnetic stimulation. Uh, is a technology invented by Ted Barker in the UK in the 80s and not patented at the time. <laughs> and that was, uh, I think, a mistake. You can talk to Ted about it because everyone who's invented anything in TMS is still around. Have you talked to Ted about it? Yep. <laughs> uh, go to the Clinical TMS Society. My wife is running for the board. Please vote for her if you're listening to this podcast. Carlene McMillan for Board of Directors of Clinical TMS Society. Um, I'll co-sign that. <laughs> and... Uh, importantly so everyone's there so it's like why do we do that with intermittent theta burst rich why'd you do that with intermittent theta burst it was the same pattern of firing we saw in rat hippocampi so we decided we'd try it 
<laughs> right. <laughs> right. No, totally. Yep. And so TMS is a great story of coming up with a thing, finding out it works, but asking essentially the wrong questions for a while. Mm. So questions you ask when you develop a drug, dose response curve. Love them. Right? Took until like a couple years ago for us to ask that question in TMS. I don't, I don't have a response. Yeah. So, so <laughs> just to lay it out for the audience, Faraday's law. Oh, right. I should, I actually, I should, I should say, gosh, I have to get better at this. What's a dose response curve? Dose response curve. How much drug gives you what response? Does it, is it too low at some point? Is there an optimal dosage? And is it too much at some point? Doesn't do you any good? Can you give me the classic alcohol description of the dose response curve of alcohol? Uh, yeah, alcohol is zero order kinetics. So um, essentially, drink <laughs> some, you get buzzed. Drink too much, you get drunk. Drink more, you get dead. Right. Uh, but there is a, in terms of response curve, there's a point where it's a present and a point where it's a simulant. Is that is uh, that old news? That's old news. Am I so wrong? The, yeah, well, the point is- Do they teach is, me the wrong thing? I mean, the point is like, uh, at a certain point, because uh, alcohol dehydrogenase gets uh, uh, basically completely occupied by alcohol at a certain point, yeah. you process it at a fixed rate, um, which we call zero order kinetics. So it gets eliminated from your system at a fixed amount because you're almost right. always just like maxing out your capacity to detoxify alcohol. Yep. Um, so I, yeah, look, it's different to have a little bit of drink than a lot. Right. And there's too much. Right. TMS, we don't know what too much is. Right. I haven't found that out yet. There's kind of an optimal, uh, presumably there's kind of an optimal peak. We, we don't know what it is though. Right. Um, so, so, you know, we, we took this treatment, which we could, well, it took a thing, which we could use to make different parts of your body move if we wanted to. And we pointed it at the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And we did a pattern of stimulation using Faraday's law, thumb in the direction of the wire, fingers curl in the direction of the magnetic field, current induced in the wire. Yep. Right. And that wire is an axon in your brain. Yep. And it carries current. And so one way of looking at neurons is their wires. Another way is you think all about the chemicals of the axon terminal. I think that's kind of silly. Yeah. Because in this regard, you can point a magnetic field generating thing uh, at wires and induce current. Right. And so just like every other fucking thing in our modern world, Faraday rules. Yeah. Um, Faraday, Ma Faraday Maxwell is one of my favorite biographies yeah. of all time. There's a great bi biography yeah. written on them and really fascinating. Highly recommended. Lincoln bio probably. So- that that relationship, it turns out, uh, matters, right? Yeah. And so neurons firing more or firing less, depending on what you're doing with it, given the pattern of stimulation, long-term potentiation or long-term depression, you exercise, you get a bigger muscle. Right. You exercise your nerves in a specific way, they fire more, they fire more strongly. Right. And it turns out the functional connectivity relationships between the nodes in the network also matter. Mm -hmm. So if what you're trying to do is X thing, you don't actually have to stimulate at X spot. You can stimulate at a spot that's functionally connected to X spot or anti-correlated for that matter, which right. means uh, activity goes up in one place, goes down reliably in another. Right. This and, is the fancy word down-regulating. Yeah. So it's you can you can up, down, up, down, left, right, start, stop, start, stop. Cheat code, <laughs> right. the brain. Totally. Without cutting into it. Yep. Using magnetic stimulation. Right. And you can change things. And those things are, can get from, from state-dependent things like depression yep. to trait-dependent things like OCD mm. and trait-dependent things like hypnotizability, which has a stability in the brain of handedness, roughly, but is modifiable 
at least theoretically. Handedness. Handedness is the thing. We haven't done that yet because there's no clinical rationale, but Nolan has done studies on hypnotizability using clinical populations with fibromyalgia to modify their pain threshold. And he can modify something with a stability of 0.8. Handedness is 0.9. Oh, like left-handedness. Yep. I see. Sorry. I was thinking the of chirality. The brain stability of left I was starting to think about symmetry, yeah. organ symmetries and stuff. Just like was, how, how, how it stays fixed in the brain. Right. Trait, not yep. state. And those are modifiable too. Got it. Fuck. <laughs> and so that reflective wait, 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 wait. I just caught yeah. on. Yeah. I just got, it, it took a moment. Yeah. You're telling me that yeah. you could make someone hypnotizable, which is kind of, you're saying yep. a trait as akin to yep. left to right. And now we're going to tie it back into mentalizing. Reflective functioning, a.k.a. theory of mind, is also a trait. Yeah. That I would argue is probably modifiable. Say that again for the audience and for me. So there's a book about this yeah. by a dude who had it done to him called Switched On. Hmm. By a guy with autism who got treated with TMS and ruined his relationship with his wife. Because <laughs> suddenly he could think about her thoughts and feelings and she did not like that. Oh, yeah. Ruin their relationship. Uh, yeah. Right. But the, the theory of mind, right, is the thing, the ability to recognize that minds are in both people. Yeah. Um, and, and that those internal states matter, or what yeah. we call mentalizing in, in the model I use. But mm. generally, we're referring to it in more fluctuant states around attachment, personality disorders, et cetera. But autism is basically a severe fixed theory of mind deficit. I see. Right. Oh, he's not thinking about what I'm thinking, so we're going to forgive his gaffe. Because he doesn't know it's a gaffe because he didn't imagine our minds. That's a trait. Right. And now, at least theoretically, traits could be modified by modifying the functional connectivity networks that control them. So I've seen OCD, which is a relatively stable condition, get to remission <laughs> regularly. That's kind of unheard of. Yes. It's a huge head fuck. Because for years I was treating OCD and it got a little bit better and I thought good felt good about myself. Right. I'm coping with my depression more. Right. Great. Awesome. And now I feel like a failure if I don't get people to remission because I can do that 80% of the time. Yeah. Ridiculous. With 13 failed medication trials on average. So, I'm going to I'm I'm I'll be I'll be selfish for a moment. So, I'm doing my PhD on this topic. Yep. But there's sometimes a disconnect between what academics are interested in and what's often years ahead in the clinic. Sometimes it's the other way around, but yeah. often the people who are boots on the ground are figuring things out and we're kind of the explainers afterwards. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the time the model that people have in their head is that scientists figure out how something works and then it goes top down, but often it's bottom up and both happen. But this yep. sounds like it's something that's a little bit bottom up here. Um, so Nolan was working this out the same time we were working it out. Yeah. And we compared notes over brunch yeah. and found out we had the same remission rates. So we standardized, oh, no. we standardized the protocols we were using, and now we have shareable data for the FDA. Nice. Yeah. Uh, he, I mean, now, he is a, a stone-cold genius. Like, he was a neurologist before he's a psychiatrist. He's, like, three years younger than me. <laughs> like, it's not fair. He's so good. Um, he's an inpatient psychiatrist. I love and working with those people. If, I don't, if I'm not, like, a little bit annoyed by how smart my car... car, yeah. car 
colleagues or partners yeah. are, I'm like, no, I shouldn't be working. But with I that. have different gifts, and I will just totally. I am good at explaining stuff. Why do you think I want you here? Right. So, um, <laughs> and, and I'm I'm probably better at explaining stuff than most people who have my gig. Right. Um, and that matters for a bunch of reasons because I basically shit pull quotes. Beautiful. And uh, so, in brief, depression doesn't have to be that way. Right. We have interventions that can get people who are suicidal reliably not so in a matter of hours to days, not weeks to months to years. Right. And the same may be true for other psychiatric or neurological conditions. Totally. And TMS is one approach to that, but I would argue effective psychotherapies are another and for, for different things because you can be not depressed and your life can still be shit. Right. I have a kid who I've gotten from 40 on the ham D to zero, and he started drinking dextromethorphan. What's dextromethorphan? Dextromethorphan? Yeah. Robitussin. Nice. Because he couldn't cope with the experience of no longer being depressed. Got it. Because there were so many other things that didn't make sense anymore. Right. One, one, thing, one thing that I often think about is that, so, one thing I often think about is that just because you solve someone's proximal problem does not mean you solved their life yes because a lot i think i think actually when we hosted a clubhouse room together you mentioned this that like you have a certain amount of time i'll use a different metaphor than you were using but you have a certain amount of time where you're like your boat is getting filled up with water and before your hand you had your hands tied and you couldn't bail the water out yeah okay now your hands are untied but you're still in a sinking boat mm-hmm. and you need to start bailing water out Right. And there's like a practical level of like there's, there's a certain like set of practical skills and knowledge that you have to like build up and work those muscles in order to get the ship bailed out so you mm-hmm. can start sailing again. Right. And, you know. But then where do you go? And then, well, that's a whole other question, right? Okay, now we got to, now, now, now my house is clean, my bed is made, my food's in the fridge, um, I have a job. I have, uh, I have a patient who summed this up perfectly. With every other treatment, I was moving around furniture in a house that was burning down. Right. And I feel like here I've raised that to the ground and built a solid foundation. How'd you do that? Said another group member. TMS and MBT. Yeah. But you still have to build a new house. Right. Right. And so I think like when the question is, how do I alleviate human suffering? Well, there's an, there are answers to that. And you can alleviate certain kinds of human suffering. Um, and But when you actually get through the process of doing so, you learn there are other problems that are just as, if not more interesting or important. Yeah. So once you know something like, if I give you the piece of information we just accepted as true, that transcranial magnetic stimulation can in 80% of people in five days get depression to remission. And that is a replicable standard. Right. Now with that information, what the fuck do you do with it? And that's the problem I actually want to solve. Okay, let's dive, let's dive in. Right. So I thought the question was, how do you solve human suffering? Right. And this is just a variant thereof. There's obviously right. many more ways people can solve it. And you found, shockingly, by framing it in the kind of sledgehammer scalpels methodology, and you found mm-hmm. this technology, TMS, that mm-hmm. could do be a scalpel, mm-hmm. that that problem kind of, you feel... That's a nominal is problem. ...is solved. For me. As, as much as you, as far as you feel is necessary to take it before taking next steps. Right. Well, once you know that, what do you, what are you stuck with? Right. Especially compared to the rest of the things in your armamentarium. So if I have a thing that works way better than everything else, yeah, and I have a bunch of stuff that works less well, yeah, and you're living in the real world, 
where not at, where almost no one is using this. Correct. And where it's what am I am I right in saying that this is only something you can use on people with treatment resistant depression? Not necessarily. Uh, as in, that's not what I'm asking. What I'm asking is legally, is it something you can legally, only use? So as a doctor, you can do whatever the fuck you want. Wait, do I have my hands tied just because I work in science? Yep. Why do you study in treatment-resistant depression? I'll give you the answer to that. Lower placebo response rates. Easier to run the study. Oh. Zero placebo response and 13 treatment failures. Fascinating. Less functional connectivity between left DLPFC and subgenual singular than fMRI. Got it. No placebo response means functionally. Uh, this is why OCD is great to study, treatment-resistant OCD. No placebo response. Yeah. So you're, if you get a result, it's real. You don't have that 40% fucking thing they have with meds. You know, when you compare one half-ass med to a placebo half-ass med, you need 2,000 patients in the study. They got FDA clearance for OCD treatment with 99 patients. Wow. No placebo response. That's why you study treatment refractory. It's not because that's the only people it works for. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. So I got, right. a, I got a thing and I'm sitting here looking at this thing and going, look, we're going to replicate this. The data is going to pile up. We're going to know this is the most effective thing in the world. But guess what? I can't do. What can't you do? Get it paid for. Funding. Number four. Boom. Boom. We're at the fourth F. I knew this is the first podcast where we've gotten to the fourth F. I'm so excited. For <laughs> Had them in mind. Thank right? you. I, I I'm glad I preloaded this. Mind. So the problem, the problem turned out not to be. What's the best science to help my patients? Right. The problem turned out to be, how do I gronk the system that we're working with that sees this and goes, nah. Okay, so funding. Um, to, for whom is this creating value? For whom is it not? Mentalize the system that is quite disintegrated. So how does insurance work? How do I think it works? Yeah. I'll take a wild swing at it. Um, insurance works based on... Oh, I see why you're asking this question. Um, insurance worst works because, uh, based on this, you have a group of people who get together, they pool their risk together. Uh, the, the distribution of illness is supposedly, and roughly is, that... Like one one person will have a like people will have a catastrophic failure in their health at different times, and most people won't have a catastrophic failure at all. So every in your group of let's say a thousand people, one person gets a catastrophic failure, and all the other nine hundred ninety nine people have pooled their money and have saved that person, that thousandth person from their catastrophic failure. Yep. And what the medical insurance companies are doing is they're profiting off of that delta between the amount of money that's coming in and the and the amount it actually cost to run that treatment. So now, assuming that's true, okay, which you'll find out it's not. What if Lovely. you took the profit on that? Can I? Can I? Can I ask? Was that the ex response you expected? That's a good response. Okay, <laughs> uh, it's how traditional insurance markets work. Okay, it's not how health insurance turns out to work financially. Very excited. To there learn. is a law that says that for fully insured insurance health insurance plans, where all the risk is managed theoretically by the plan, that they are capped in the amount of profits they can make at 15 or 20%, depending on the size of the group. Functionally, how does that change the game theory? Tell me. They're capped at the amount they're able to profit. 20% is the amount you can profit. How do you oh, increase shareholder value? Are you saying a proportion yeah. of... 
Oh, so you God. Figured, you figured that out in a second. Lawmakers just passed that fucking law. So, okay, I'll spell it out. I mean, to be, to be fair, I'm a, I'm a physicist, right? So. Sure. Great. <laughs> so, I wish more of you were around when this is being debated. Well, we can uh, we can, we can ch chat offline about about that, but um, the the because I'm excited about that. But uh, but the reason proportion matters is because if you have tw a twenty percent law, then what you do is you raise prices. So you're if you you have two ways of making money in general, right? Yep. Which is increasing your slice of mm -hmm. the pie. And increasing the size of the pie. And we froze the slice. And size. we froze the Ratio. slice size. So what you get to do now, all you get to do now is profit off of making the pie bigger. Right. Which functionally means increasing the cost of healthcare. Ta-da! Oh, okay. So, okay, the th things that you develop gets dumped, get dumped into the system. Right. So... It so importantly, there is nothing evil or wrong about this. Yeah. Companies exist to maximize shareholder value. Right. They follow the incentives that are in front of them like all people. Right. Or all people-related systems, right? Mm -hmm. If you're told, maximize shareholder value, and the only way you can do that is by raising the size of the pie. Yeah. You will find ways to tell yourself you are doing anything but just driving up the cost of healthcare. But that's what you'll do. Right. It, this is this is the classic adage in in game theory, which is don't hate the player, hate the game. Yep. And the issue is is that the incentive structures are what develop the system. You see, I think I see a lot of people whose whole ethos is saying, "Oh well, given this incentive structure, people should ignore the incentive structure and just be good people." So the irony is, what I did was that in my practice, yeah. and that helped us break the model. You know what's funny about that is that that isn't exactly what you did. And I'm not saying that I'm not saying that because I have any intimate knowledge of what you guys did, but actually in small groups of people, by way of empathy and culture, you can modify the game. Yeah. Because people care about their social uh, you know, economy as well. The right. social economics of things are very real. Right. Not all value is monetary. And yes. so in a small community, you can set up a culture that makes a different game theory. Yes, that's right? what we did. So, so I, I, I just pushed back on the idea that actually what you did is you modified your social culture of the, of, of your organization exactly. such that the, such that the incentive structure caused good behavior. You never, ever, ever effectively change things without changing the game. Correct. So the problem that needed to be solved was what game we're playing. So what game, sh what game, so we, now we know the game we are playing, right. or at least insurance players, companies are play, playing, mm -hmm. which but is- all doctors are playing by their rules. Right. Because that's how they get paid. Right. Unless you totally opt out, and then you're left resource starved. You have to play special. the health insurance game because the prices are so high that every, yeah. Well, I mean, you're not presented with a lot of different other options, right? So TMS yeah. is a good example. My machines are $250,000 a piece. Right. So you're not going to run that private pay. You're going to take third-party payer for it because you want more patients. Right. So you make more money. Right. So you have to start playing that game. Right. But if you realize that that game is a busted thing. Right. And you realize you have things you can do that are more potent than you're allowed to do and get paid for. Right. Suddenly you're like, well, this game busted. What can I do? Right. So you start doing shit like bringing it to the attorney general every time you have a claim denied. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. And we win 80% of the time. Wow. Um, I have gotten OCD for treatment with TMS covered in the state of New York 
are you by the, bringing it to the attorney general and having it go to external medical review and having the medical reviewers approve it and then having the attorney general bring that back to United and say, fuck you now, you got to do this. Are you the uh, ad on the side of websites that says nope. insurance companies hate him? No. <laughs> no, I sh- I, your insurance companies love me. Why? Because I make friends. Every time a claim gets denied, you go to the attorney general's office. Yes. You're friends with insurance companies? At the same time as I have those 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 claims hitting them, right? Yeah. Uh, I am negotiating with them. Mm. So Cigna, good example. Doug okay. Nemes, I angry tweeted at Doug Nemesek, the medical provider, director of provider relations, who I have deep respect for. Yeah. Because he's good at his job. He called me back at 8.55 in the morning and said, hey, I heard about your angry tweet. <laughs> Let me talk to you about this patient situation and see if we can help. Yeah. And I was like, What? The medical director of this insurance company, which I'm in network with by happenstance, by the way, right. at the time, was calling me back. So I built a friendship with the guy yeah. over two years. Yeah. And eventually, with enough data, which we got by treating people for free, because I right. couldn't stand on treating them. Totally. Um, and then we started hammering the insurance company with these, uh, with every time we got a denial, based on, I knew I could get overturned. I knew what the criteria were. I knew what the medical reviewers would say. So every time we'd escalate. First level, second level, third level, fourth level, external review. Bam, right? And so I had two reviews for TMS for OCD the day I hammered out the deal with Cigna that let us get exempted from doing clinical review. Fast. We do administrative authorizations with Cigna. So they don't authorize TMS for OCD clinically for anybody. I don't do clinical reviews. Mm. Hammer, stick, carrot. And it turns out we doubled the size of the Cigna network for psychiatrists in New York and overnight. Wow. And now tons of people who had Cigna coverage can now actually get great comprehensive psychiatric care. That's wonderful. Yep. And I had the data to back it up. And I had the looming threat of multiple in a day reviews with the other medical director Mm. uh, saying, great, you're denying it. Bring that to the attorney general. See you in an hour to do another one. Great. Bring it to the attorney general. And they were smart enough to get out of the way of the wrecking ball. Right. Right. Yep. And furthermore, by developing the relationship, you have this opportunity to kind of when, change when the, the culture. When the clinical TMS society came to Cigna and was presenting data about coverage for TMS, they were the most receptive company in the game. Shocking. And I'm like, well, yeah, I know, because Doug and I are friends. I've been telling them about it for years. Right. right? And, and they see the utility, and they and, and especially the behavioral health side, like, it's, it's a rounding error. Mm-hmm. Causes problems, it's running here. But generating value, it turns out, by reducing cost isn't something that works in the game structure we have. Mm. So all the things that happen are predictable from this. That's wild. So like when I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about how I might make moves into the you know kind of the, the yep. tech space, yep. my whole thought process was how do I decrease costs? But that is a non-starter. If you accept the matrix. And how do you reject the matrix? Whoa. How do you do it? <laughs> like Neo, right? He just stopped the bullets. Yeah. Like he just believed he could. He was he had the there is no spoon. There is no spoon. There is no spoon. So if you're looking for a solution, you can look at what the existing structures are, but that are, those are not the only ways to look at the problem. Right. So who in the system is something like valuable to that reduces cost? And this is applicable across all of all of this twisted market, right? Someone gets hit with that cost. Yeah. Someone's uh people. People. And to whom is that a problem? Well, it turns out 
the answer is if because uh, I'm mental, like I no one's going to care about mental health. Like people with mental illness were the first killed by the Nazis. Yeah, like nobody gives a fuck. Come on, people in schizophrenics, people with you know manic depressive illness oh, and yeah. the sub oh, oh, drug addicts. Let's be clear, right? Yeah. They're still the last people people care about. Yep. You I I I emotional for me in a way. I was in Santa Cruz. I lived in UC I went to UC Santa Cruz. I lived in Santa Cruz, one of the highest homeless populations on the planet. Yep. And when people come to me and they say something so I had a conversation with a neurosurgeon over at Weill Cornell who's from Germany. Mm -hmm. She comes in and she says, do you guys just not care about your poor? Shame on your country for not caring about your poor. Mm -hmm. And I say, and I, I, and, and I say, what do you, what do you mean? And she says, there's people out there on the streets because poverty in the U S I had, and I had to say, wait, 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 no, there's people out there on the streets because we don't have a mental health care system. And when I told her that she, she paused and she says, okay, explain that to me. And I had, it was shocking to me how hard it was. And this isn't her, I'm not saying this, she's very smart. Mm -hmm. She wasn't, wasn't not getting this. They because, have the she was not model. getting, she was not getting this because she was smart or is smart, right? But in Germany, they have the Hamburg model for the treatment of psychotic illness. So when you ask them, they have these broad psychosocial interventions. And then you ask them what interventions are using for medication. And they tell you a 30% clozapine, 30% long acting injectables, and only about 30% oral antipsychotics which in the U.S. is like 1% or 2% clozapine, 1% or 2% long-acting injectables, and the rest is garbage oral antipsychotics to get 20% better. Better treatments matter. So so hold on. But th th this, isn't even what, this isn't even what she was shocked by, right? Santa Cruz. There's a huge... There's, it's really strange. There's this huge movement that is basically something along the lines of people who are out there, um, homeless, screaming into the air because they're schizophrenic, or whatever. Or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, I suspect people who are... Maybe I'm getting this wrong. Psychosis people, is, is a... There are a lot broad. of psychosis. Once, once again, cat, buck, the categories aren't very good. Yeah, categories so, are bad. Um, people suffering in ways that make them off-putting to others. Absolutely. Uh, and okay. I, actually, my I'll get it. I'll finally get it on re record. Finally on record, which is that my, my long-term joke has been that autism is a social category that you put people in who uh, make you feel like you're in the uncanny valley. <laughs> um so finally on record saying that i've been saying that for about a, a year and a half now uh but but these people who are absolutely suffering yes and the and so i had a friend who was in homeless intervention working on homeless interventions and they would do things like get them get them clothed fed put in a put in a rental house a, a rental apartment right all the things that you would imagine would help these people out and then what happens they end up destroying the apartment or, you know, massive noise complaints from neighbors. They get kicked out of the apartment mm -hmm. and they're back on the streets. You give, you give them every advantage possible and it's st they're still messed up. Why? Because they have an underlying mental illness that hasn't been treated and that they have nowhere to go to get and treated for. the experience of treatment has been coercive. Absolutely. And not helpful. They've had negative experiences with treatment. And so they quite reasonably do not want our help. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I guess, I guess what I'm getting at is that we still don't care enough right. about the mentally ill. So here's my point. No one's going to, ever. You have to make it make sense to do things that are caring that don't rely on care as the motivating factor. We're never going to get 
people well from conditions that we would rather not look at yeah. by making caring deeply a priority and the only way that happens. Once again, you change. have to change the game theory. Right, which means you have to make it make sense to Bloomberg Terminal watchers. Love that. So how do you do that? So it turns out the answer, practically speaking, is understanding reinsurance markets. Okay. So you have fully funded insurance plans, which have this kind of shackle, right? Where they are 20% of the profit margin, blah, blah, blah. If you are self-funding your insurance, because that model is bonkers and you know it, it drives up costs. Right. Um, you can self-fund. You as a company can pay directly for the care of your employees mm -hmm. and whatever you want can be paid for. Right. I pay for therapy at 150% of Medicare in my, my office for all my people. Right. Uh, we, you know, give TMS away. Um, it's cheaper. Right? Yep. Um, but there is insurance on that insurance in case something catastrophic happens. Yeah. And that acts like a regular insurance market. Right. They don't want to get hit with the claim at stop loss. And so, you know, if it goes above $40,000 per person, stop loss kicks in. And then they have to pay for it. Right. That's, that's, in, that's a regular insurance market right. that wants to reduce the cost of risk. Right. Now, importantly, those stop loss carriers tranche out that risk to capital markets. So they're pooling risk from life, disability, medical, et cetera, and then putting it in risk tranches and selling it to Cerberus, Berkshire, et cetera. Yeah. They don't give a fuck about why that risk is there. They just want to make money on it. Right. If you can make that risk cheaper for them, they can make more money. Mm. So the high acuity risk vertical in mental health is the most meaningfully modifiable source of all cause disability. It's own occupation disability, medical expense. Keep in mind, depression drives medical costs up by 44%. Thank you, Validation Institute. And you have you have a thing which was previously unsolvable, right? Well, mental health, you can't do anything with it, so we're not going to pay for it, right? Mm. Why would you pay for mental health care if you have only hammers and sledgehammers and you're only getting people 15% better and you measure none of the outcomes? So nothing you do really matters. So you have to look like you're doing something, but does it have to work? You don't know and you don't have to care as long as you don't pay too much because it keeps people sick and drives up costs. Mm. So practically having a broken mental health system makes it a lot easier to make all those other costs go up. Right. Right. Serves the ends. Even if you know none of that, you look at the numbers and the gets more profitable if you keep doing it that way. I'm not sure if I heard a solution in there though. I'm there worried. Is. Because what do you do? You modify the cost of risk. How do you do that? You take great care of people's mental illness and you don't hit stop loss. So there's a cohort of self-funded employers. Oh, you make it you make it cheap so that then they don't have to pay the, the, the medical insurance can't the secondary insurance markets on your medical insurance get to keep their money. Mm. And thus they can cover it at lower premiums and still make more money. So I have I have my the thesis for my company sphere is that by taking the highest utilizers of mental health services, particularly inpatient services, in any given population and providing good access to preventative care for everybody else, you can meaningfully reduce the cost of risk. And in our practice, we reduce inpatient hospitalization by 98%. Wow. Yep. And it sounds fancy. It's an economic magic trick. 
So I take depression and I make that from something that lasts for 20 years is the number one cause of disability worldwide. You're spending thousands of dollars on therapy and medications forever. And I make it something that's over in five days. G- give me the four dummies version of this because I'm right. still marginal cost of TMS, almost nothing. Right. Right. Takes five days. Okay. Same I mean, for dummies, marginal cost, marginal cost. It is cheap to do once you've paid the upfront cost. Which is buying the machine. Buying the machine. So two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Theoretically, buying right now it's buying the machine, not necessarily forever. Right. right. So I have so, an so, economic so, instrument. So, so let's just play I out. Can, let's play out the game. Yeah. Two hundred fifty thousand dollars to buy the machine. Right. After which point, how much does it cost you as the uh, as as the supplier? Lay all in labor, everything. Eh, it's twenty five fifty bucks an hour. Twenty five fifty bucks an hour. So fifty bucks an hour. Let's just go high. Is all it costs you? Roughly. How high? And how long is the session? Uh, eight minutes. Eight minutes. Is there something else similar that... Oh, wait. Eight minutes? So you can do a patient every 10 minutes. Yep. Maybe a patient every 15. Yep. If you're doing setup, do. setup, or yep. down. 15. So you can do four patients in an hour. Mm-hmm. So four patients in an hour, you... Let's and say... So it's actually... So it's four patients a day, essentially. Because we do 10 treatments a day. One machine. Four patients a day. Four patients a day. Per five machine. Five days in a row. Every five days, we're turning that over. So what's the... What's the... What, how much do you make in a year? Per, it's per machine. But per okay, machine. How much do you make in a year? I don't care because what I should be doing is treating as many people as I can because there is no amount you could pay me for doing that that's worth more than keeping someone well. Absolutely. And not hitting stop I'm just trying to understand the economics of it. The economics of it are, do you know what it costs to treat a person? Well, that costs $22,500 at book Oh, as, as, as the medical, as the insurance company. No, no. For, for well, for patients, right? Because right. insurance doesn't pay for it. I see. Out of pocket. Oh, insurance don't pay for medical. Not for, 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 not for accelerated TMS. They pay once a day. Got once it. a day is not as good. I see. So I don't want to do once a day forever. Right. Because it's what's paid for. I mean, I do it now because I want people to afford it. Right. But it's not the best treatment as far as I can tell. Got it. Um, accelerated treatment is more reliable. Mm-hmm. And the, given, I mean, there are reasons to not do it, blah, 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 blah. Right. But on average, if you could get depression to go away 80% of the time, yep. as opposed to 10% of the time with medications, yes, you would want to do that. Because yes. How do you, you get the insurance? I'm just trying to understand how you got the insurance, how you get the insurance companies want to do this. Uh, become uh, the insurance company. Explain. You own the risk. Wow. So instead of going to the self-funded employer and saying, hey, I've got a great healthcare product, you go and you say, I have a great insurance product. And why does the, why does the. Because I guarantee the return. This is going to cost you 20% less. You're going to get a one-to-one ROI at minimum, and you're never going to pay more than 80% of what you've been spending. We split the savings 50-50 after our PEPM, and you're going to walk away. I'm walking here promising that you're going to save 20% of your spend. I think I'm getting it now. What you're saying is that the, uh, the these private companies have mental health care uh, mental, benefits. Yeah. M- benefits. Yep. Then they have a certain they, they they currently have some sort of insurance system that they pool themselves. Yep. They pool for themselves. Mostly this. they're using networks of credential doctors in the third party administration pools of say Cigna, for example. Yeah. Mostly it's just a network. And you pay them sixty four dollars per member per month to get access to the network. Yeah. The network in New York before I joined it was for psychiatrists. Right. Sixty four dollars per employee per month. Right. Thirty five thousand employees at Goldman Sachs. Got it. Times $64. Right. I was making $118 a visit. Right. 
I was in the wrong game. Right. I'd much rather be the network. So then right they now, pocket the difference between the cost and how much it, how much they spend. Not even. Because right now, that $64 per member month, that's just access to the network. You haven't even paid the claims yet. Oh. They still have to play the claims. So by reducing the cost, yep. these private healthcare networks, which is what mental healthcare is, is, is lives in, mm-hmm. actually- No one's in those, by the way, because they pay $118, not $800 an hour, which is what I make otherwise. Mm. Why would you do that? You wouldn't. So right now in healthcare, you get paid for the pencil you use on the test and ha- taking extra long. Yeah. Did you ever want to take extra long on a test? You want to get it fucking done and get the answers right. Right. I took half days after my boards because I got that shit done fast. Right. Because right? I'm not going to get the answer righter if I spend longer on the test. But in medicine, you're paid more for doing that. Mm. Which is insane. Right. Because you took a bunch of people, doctors, who got the answers right their whole career, and then you make it their livelihood to not have to have that be any meaningful factor in their reimbursement. Yeah. You take their whole incentive structure, getting it right away from them. It's brutal. Um, and so it turns out the question I was answering was a funding question, not a treatment question. But it was only by finding out I had an effective treatment that I could even ask the funding question. Because without, and that's just one example. We have other very effective interventions for other conditions yep. in our armamentarium that broadly let us deal with kind of whatever may come. Right. In a very high risk, highly comorbid cohort. Right. So what's the what's the what's the one sentence version of how of, of how this works? Because I'm still, I have to admit, I'm still. If and if I'm not get, if I'm not fully getting yep. it, then yep. my viewers are going to have an issue. Yeah. So it's real simple. Um, find who savings matters to. Right. Deliver those savings to them. Right. And they will want you to do whatever you're doing more. And so your your statement is that the main industry of insurance doesn't care about savings Correct. because their game is a proportion game. So yep. they want to increase the size of the pie. Right. But the secondary insurance markets, right. which are the pooled companies. They're the risk pooled by the companies across various insurance verticals, but yes. Right. Okay. But that's not that's not the for dummies version. It's not the for dummies version. No, no, no. There, it, that wrecks like right, the insurance you described at the beginning. That's a that's an reinsurance market. Got it. So where 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 what you do is you pool risk together. Yep. You pay. You, you, one person has a catastrophic thing. You pay right. off that, and then you pocket the difference right. between what was paid in and, and I what make came it out. Less people getting hit. Right. And and you make it cheaper. Yep. And savings matters to them. Yep. They make more money. Yep. You make money off the difference of the difference that they had. Yep. I see. Right. So, so it, it doesn't matter what I'm doing to them. Yeah. It turns out what I'm doing is providing exceptional mental health care. Whereas in the primary insurance market doesn't care about savings. They want to increase the pie. The secondary insurance market, risk pooled companies want to say, want savings and are willing to pay for, pay less than the amount that they lose in order to get those savings. Yeah. If you, if you're going to go to Vegas, you're going to go to the machine with the best payout. Right. I see. I see. So we took blackjack Clear. from being a game. Forty nine fifty one. You're always going to lose, and we just changed the odds, the pot odds on that. So you can sit down at my blackjack table and take away more winnings than losings. Right. That's some hot shit. And the only fee you do is you pay you pay fifty percent of your earnings, which you're going to get to the I, table. There, there are different ways of structuring it. 
Yeah. Um, but frankly, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. The point is that there's, there, there's a delta, there's a gap there to make money. Right. Arbitrage. Arbitrage. There's an arbitrage opportunity there. Yep. Fascinating. And it doesn't matter how we do it. Yep. And what's important about that is it speeds up innovation. So I guess the final important question for the podcast is, are you hiring? Uh, in, in, in like a week. Yeah. And so maybe I, I'll post this in a week. Maybe you get a link for that and maybe we'll get some applications um, shot your way. So yeah, I mean like, I, well, maybe a little more than a week to actually get the hiring machine up and running. Fair enough. But, um, but practically like that's, that's the approach. We, uh, were taking you know, I just blew my whole thing. Anyone can try to copy this. It turns out it's not that easy to copy because, I'm, I, because well, no one's going to hear the thing anyway. And even when they do, it's complicated. But most importantly, the actual like sum total of what we do is actually hard to do. Yeah. And people don't like to do hard things. The thing is, the thing is and this is, this is I, I best, one of my favorite things I've ever been told in my life. Yeah. David Hausler, you know, who, you know who he is? Yep. Head of the Human Genome Project yep. for assembling the first human genome. Mm-hmm. We were drinking wine mm-hmm. because I was in his lab. So we were drinking wine like together as one do, as, as one does. And I say, I have this idea, but I'm really afraid that someone's going to steal it. And he said, well, if, first of all, if you have only one good idea, quit science. Yeah. Right. Right. Cause it's methodology for developing good ideas, not a good idea. Exactly. And the second thing he said was, and if it's that easy to copy, it wasn't a good idea in the first place. Right. So, you know, what I'm saying is actually very simple. By taking comprehensive care of people's incredibly complex mental health problems right. and the sickest of the sick, you actually make money for people who don't care about that. Right. And and because think of the game that David Hausler won. Yep. Uh, he, sequence the first human genome. Yep. Everyone understands that. Yep. No one's confused about what the problem you're solving, mm-hmm. right? The problem is just hard enough yep. that he was willing to go toe-to-toe and solve it. Yep. Awesome. Yep. Well, very good. I wish you luck. Thank you. I want to see that work. I'm really excited to have gotten you on here, and I really appreciate you for coming out. Any last things that you want to tidbits? Anything to look for? Anything you want to promo? Was that an an unexpected uh, narrative to get through your four Fs? Oh, it's it's. Was it unexpected? I think these four Fs were designed to get that narrative. Okay, Okay. like it. Um, Are you satisfied with the answer? Absolutely. Um, I, I'm satisfied to have finally gotten a four, the fourth F out there. Okay. Funding matters, but it's not necessarily the funding you think it is. It's like having a business model that people can buy into. Maybe the final F should be financials. Financials. Definitely. I might modify my Fs. Yeah. I'll think about it. I have other, other things I can say about funding, which are entertaining, but for But you know time. what we'll do is we're going to, we're going to save it for, an, I can tell we have it. I, I can tell we have another episode. Psychedelics. that's next we we, we get you know what this is what we'll do once i'm established enough that i won't get (laughs) the nobel prize winners of rockefeller won't just the economics of psychedelics yeah hypothetically i'm interested in that yeah um well anyway once again thank you for for coming out and i look forward to seeing how this progresses thank you Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Solutions. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed making it. And if you did, I would really appreciate it if you would pop onto YouTube and like, comment, share, and subscribe, as well as share the podcast on any of the streaming platforms on which it's available to all of your friends, family, 
and anyone else who you know who is interested in science and science communication. The more you share, the bigger the podcast gets, and that really helps us out from getting this sort of frank dialogue between scientists spread to a more general audience. I do believe it's important that the public sees what it looks like for two scientists to dialogue so that we have a less abstract idea of what it is that scientists do and what scientists sound like. So the more you share, the more that message gets out, and the more we can spread any solutions that might come out of these episodes. Anyway, thank you again for your support, and I hope to see you at the next instantiation of solutions. Goodbye.